As you can see there, we're up to uh, our next instalment in the book of 2 Samuel, namely chapter 14. I'll give you a minute to uh, flick that up. And we're going to read uh, 2 Samuel 14 in its entirety. As you're flicking that up, brief little bit of context. Uh, we know that uh, we're looking at the uh, slow and steady decline of the kingdom of David last week. Uh, we saw an absolutely horrendous event. Uh, and uh, on account of that event, Absalom, one of David's sons, has killed his brother Amnon and therefore uh, fled and gone into exile. And we pick up uh, from that uh, little part of 2 Samuel. So, Samuel beginning, chapter 14. It says this, Joab, son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. So, Joab sent someone to Tekoa, and had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, pretend you're in mourning, dress in mourning clothes, and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman from Tekoa went to the king, she fell with her face to the ground to pay him honour, and she said, help me, your majesty. The king asked her, what is troubling you? She said, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. I, your servant, had two sons. They got into a fight with each other in the field and no one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen up against your servant. They say, hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. Then we'll get rid of the heir as well they would put out the only burning coal I have left, leaving my husband neither name nor descendant on the face of the earth. The king said to the woman, go home and I'll issue an order on your behalf. But the woman from Tekoa said to him, let my lord the king pardon me and my family and let the king and his throne be without guilt. The king replied, if anyone says anything to you, bring them to me and they will not bother you again. She said, then let the king invoke the Lord his God to prevent the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction so that my son will not be destroyed. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Then the woman said, let your servant speak a word to my Lord the king. Speak, he replied. The woman said, why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. And now I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought, I will speak to the king. Perhaps he will grant his servant's request. Perhaps the king will agree to deliver his servant from the hand of the man who is trying to cut off both me and my son from God's inheritance. And now your servant says, may the word of my lord, the king, secure my inheritance. For my lord, the king is like an angel of God in discerning good and evil. May the Lord your God be with you. Then the king said to the woman, don't keep me from the answer to what I'm going to ask you. Let my lord the king speak, the woman said. The king asked, isn't the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered, 
As surely as you live, my Lord the King, no one can turn to the right or left from anything my Lord the King says. Yes, it was your servant Joab who instructed me to do this and who put all these words into the mouth of your servant. Your servant Joab did this to change the present situation. My Lord has wisdom like that of an angel of God. He knows everything that happens in the land. The king said to Joab, very well, I will do it. Go, bring back the young man, Absalom. Joab fell with his face to the ground to pay him honour. And he blessed the king. Joab said, today your servant knows that he's found favour in your eyes, my lord the king, because the king has granted his servant's request. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him, he would weigh it and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. His daughter's name was Tamar and she became a beautiful woman. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king, but Joab refused to come to him. So he sent a second time, but he refused to come. Then he said to his servants, look, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there, go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house, and he said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom said to Joab, Look, I sent word to you and said, Come here so I can send you to the king and ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me if I was still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. And if I am guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everyone. Please keep your Bibles open to uh, 2 Samuel 14. Let's uh, pray as we uh, come to this part of God's word. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray now and ask that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand and hearts ready to respond to you and your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the compelling aspects of biblical Christianity is the way that it accounts for and explains the reality of the human condition, warts and all. Uh, it doesn't gloss over the fact that we are broken. It doesn't airbrush the reality that we humans are capable of and at times often do terrible things. Now, by God's grace, at times we're also capable of doing great and wonderful things, but the Bible presents a realistic picture of the human condition and it does so with great explanatory power. It says that our brokenness, ultimately, it stems from our defiance of God, our Creator. We are sinful and that sin leads 
to all manner of brokenness and dysfunction. The Bible just makes sense of how people are. Now, thankfully, biblical Christianity doesn't only helpfully, accurately, realistically diagnose the problem, it also points us to the glorious solution found in Jesus. But the chapters we're looking at uh, tonight and in in the surrounding weeks as we work our way through the second half of uh, 2 Samuel, these highlight for us and and illustrate the, the brokenness of sin, which does ultimately point us to the glorious solution, but it does so by showing us the folly of other attempts at a solution and, and, and it leaves us longing for a better way. So my hope this evening is to help us to really, well, to feel the weight of some of the foolish schemes of humans. Uh, not so as to depress us, but actually to, to point us forward, to point us forward in hope for the glorious solution that's found in Jesus. Now, before we uh, dive into this chapter, I think it is helpful uh, to recap a bit and to, to sort of set the scene. Uh, if you haven't been um, uh, tuned into 2 Samuel, uh, the reading that, that Ben just brilliantly gave us, it, it may kind of set your mind spinning. There is a lot going on. Uh, now, through the, the first half of, of 2 Samuel, uh, which we, we looked at last year in our uh, sermon series on 2 Samuel, uh, we've seen David rise as king of Israel. Now, that reaches a real high point in chapter 7. That's one of the key chapters of the Bible, 2 Samuel 7, where God promises to make a house or a dynasty for David. God says he's going to raise up one of David's offspring and establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's in 2 Samuel 7, verse 13. So we've got this real high point. David is king and God has promised he's going to establish his uh, what the, off, uh, the throne of his offspring forever. But just as David's kingships reach this, this great height, it starts to unravel. Disastrously, David commits adultery with Bathsheba and then he arranges for the murder of her husband in an attempt to cover things up. God confronts David through Nathan the prophet. David repents and asks for God's forgiveness. God forgives but the consequences of David's sin remain and unfold throughout these chapters. And so we see this this downhill demise of the house of David. We saw last week how the the sins of the father David are continued by his sons Amnon and Absalom. We see David's response. He's furious and grief-stricken, but he remains passive. He, he, He doesn't actually deal rightly with the situation and so chapter 13 <clears throat> finishes with, with Absalom having plotted and carried out the murder of his brother Amnon and then fleeing then to, to Geshur, his mother's native country, where he remained exiled for three years. It's a messy situation. David's king, his family is going off the rails, Amnon, his firstborn's dead, Absalom, it would seem, is lining up to take the throne, but he's, he's murdered his brother and fled and David is seemingly doing nothing about the whole situation it's a mess and what unfolds in this chapter chapter 14 are are the attempts of three men to well to deal with the situation to 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 deal with it in the way that they think best they try to to sort out the troubles that have come on the house of David but actually despite their efforts all they manage to do is well make things worse and in fact unintentionally prepare the way for the near destruction of David's kingdom 
There's quite a bit going on in, in this chapter. Uh, first reading, it might uh, be a bit hard to get your head around, but we're going to look at it under the heading, as you'll see in the outline, of the foolish schemes, and we're going to look at three foolish schemes of these three men. Firstly, there's Joab's cunning scheme. Sorry about that. There we are. We're up to point one. Joab's cunning scheme. Uh, Joab, you're thinking, who's Joab? Well, Joab is the, the commander of David's army. He's the top, the top dog of, of David's army. He's also David's nephew, the son of Zeruiah, as it says in verse 1, uh, that's David's sister. So Joab, David's nephew, commander of his army. Now, Joab's the sort of person who is absolutely sure that he knows what needs to be done and he's fully confident that he's the one to do it. Do you know that sort of person? They're, they're not that uncommon. They, they, you might know someone like that. Well, this is Joab and he thinks he knows what needs to be done. I think he was probably well-intentioned. Uh, he wanted to to fix things up and disentangle the, the mess of David's family with this, Absalom estranged and David seemingly doing nothing about it for three years. Joab wants to help. He tries to help, or at least I'm sure that's how he saw it. So he devises this cunning plan to manipulate David. He uh, enlists the help of a, uh, a wise woman from Tekoa, it says. Uh, Tekoa is a nearby town to Jerusalem. Uh, the description there in verse 2 uh, of her being wise, it's actually the same word in the, in the previous chapter that's used of Jonadab in uh, verse, where is it, verse 3 of chapter, chapter 13. Um, Jonadab was at um, Amnon's horrendous advisor and the word translated there was very shrewd. So this woman who's very shrewd, wise, you might say cunning, uh, Joab enlists her help and gives her an acting gig. She is to go to the king and pretend to be a mourning, desperate widow in need of the king's help. Verse 2, so Joab sent someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. He said to her, pretend you are in mourning, dress in mourning clothes, don't use any cosmetic lotions, act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. And Joab put the words in her mouth. And so under Joab's instruction, she goes to the king and manipulates him brilliantly with her desperate story. The story goes like this, verse 4. When the woman from Tekoa went to the king, she fell with her face to the ground to pay him honour and she said, help me, your majesty. The king asked her, what is troubling you? She said, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. I, your servant, had two sons. They got into a fight with each other in the field and no one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen up against your servant. They say, hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. It's a very sad story. One son struck down the other, killed him. It's a little reminiscent of two other sons, brothers in the Bible. Anyone want to? Suggest who that might be? Cain and Abel. That's right. Cain struck down Abel, killed him. Cain was then banished, but protected from anyone who would, who would kill him. As the woman's story goes, that the whole clan has risen up to avenge the death of the son by killing the other son. And, and I have actually argued that God's law required this to happen. In Exodus 21 verse 12, Oops, sorry, I missed that one. There we are. 
It says, uh, anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it is not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, they are to flee to a place I will designate. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. So was it deliberate or not in this fictitious story? We don't know. Should justice require the death of the murderer? Well, the woman pleads with the king for her remaining son's protection. And she gives him sort of four reasons. Firstly, she, she seems to uh, present it as unintentional, that you know, he didn't plan to do this. It just happened in the heat of a quarrel. And secondly, she says that the clan is not really interested in justice. They just want to get rid of the heir so they can get their hands on the estate. Thirdly, she appeals to the, the king's compassion. I mean, she's lost her husband, she's lost her other son, and, and now she says they would remove the only burning coal I have left, the, 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 the only remaining source of warmth and light in her life. And lastly, she highlights that her husband's name and posterity would be eliminated, eliminated if they kill the remaining son. It's a sad story, and it's masterfully told. And we kind of wonder at this point, is, is the king starting to sort of notice some parallels to his own situation? Two sons, one kills the other. What should happen to the remaining son? Should he die? Should he flee? Should he be restored? Well, the woman has appealed for help from the king. The king gives his answer, verse 8. The king said to the woman, go home and I'll issue an order in your behalf. I've got to say, it's fairly non-committal. Go home, I'll, I'll sort something out. I'll, I'll issue an order. And she's not really happy with this. She's not ready to leave. And, well, we discover she and Joab are not finished yet. And so she courageously pushes things further, verse 9. But the woman from Tekoa said to him, Let my lord the king pardon me and my family, and let the king and his throne be without guilt. I think what she's saying here is, look, King, if, if there's any concern in your mind that, that it could be wrong to let the bloodshed go unpunished, well, let that be on me and my family and, and not on the King. She, she's taking full responsibility if there's any concern about any sort of injustice in this fictitious story. But the manipulation is well played and the King steps up his, uh, his uh, reassertion, verse 10, the King uh, replied, if anyone says anything to you, bring them to me and they will not bother you again. It's reassuring, but it's still a bit non-committal. What's going to happen to the son? That's really what she wants to know. Will he be destroyed? And so she pushes again. Verse 11, she said, then let the king invoke the Lord his God to prevent the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction so that my son will not be destroyed. She boldly asks the king to act in the name of the Lord God to protect her son. And it's interesting there that she appeals, sorry, that she speaks of, of the avenger of blood. That's a, a, a title, a phrase that's used in a few times in the scriptures. It, it, and it seems to, she's admitting that maybe the, the clan have, have a case against him. And Numbers 35 describes uh, similar situations where the, well, the death of the murderer would be called for. But the woman pleads that this not happen, that the king declare that this will not take place. She's manipulated the king so well that he, well, he caves and no longer beating around the bush, 
He says clearly, unambiguously, verse 11, as surely as the Lord lives, he said, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. David promises to act to save her guilty son. And this cunning woman under Joab's direction has, has moved the king to fall for her trap. Well, then she boldly pushes one step further. She asks, verse 12, then the, uh, the woman said, let your servants speak a word to my lord, the king. She, she seeks permission to speak again. And, well, she has his attention, so he says, speak. Verse 13, the woman said, why then have you devised a, th a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. Now, she, she hasn't dropped her pretense. She's, she's still pretending that she's in this desperate situation as a widow. But, but she raises this as a kind of second issue. It may, may be something that's just sort of seemingly occurred to her. She, she points out a double standard. See, the king here is, is willing to save her guilty son, but he's unwilling to bring back his own banished son. She's in effect likening his lack of care for Absalom to the destructive intent of the clan seeking her son's death. And notice that she says that um, David's failure is against the people of God. His response or his lack of response of not bringing back Absalom is in some way harming the people of God. I've got to say it's a bold thing that this, uh, this woman is doing to, to say this to the king. But on the other hand, the double standard is obvious and the king is somewhat trapped. Well, then superbly, she, she kind of pushes her point further whilst simultaneously easing off the pressure by sort of speaking generally. She says somewhat philosophically, verse 14, well, like water spilled on the ground, we, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. Death comes to us all. It, it's, it's as inevitable as spilled water on the ground being unrecoverable. But, she continues, but that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. Saying God is keen to, to see banished people restored. He's a God of grace and restoration, she reminds the king. Maybe this comment was calculated to remind David of his own history of being a banished man driven away by the anger of Saul. And yet the Lord had devised a way so that he didn't remain banished forever. But she's just talking about what God desires as she is supposedly just interested to notice and comment on this coincidental parallel in their situations and David's apparent double standard. And then having masterfully pointed out the elephant in the room, she quickly retreats behind her disguise as this mourning widow and pretends that what she said is just, was just a secondary afterthought. She says, verse 15, And now I've come to say this to my lord the king because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought, I'll speak to the king. Perhaps he will grant his servant's request. Perhaps the king will agree to deliver his servant from the hand of the man who is trying to cut off both me and my son from God's inheritance. And now your servant says, May the word of my lord the king secure my inheritance. For my lord the king is like an angel of God in discerning good and evil. May the lord your God be with you. My paraphrase, 
O king, thank you so much for promising to save my son. That really is why I came here. And did I mention how wonderful you are? P.S. Please don't kill me. I picture a pretty tense scene here. She's just challenged the king. She's, She's accused him of not bringing back his banished son, which she says, well, that would actually be the the godly thing to do. What will the king do? Well, it's the king's turn to make a request or perhaps a demand. Verse 18, Then the king said to the woman, Don't keep from me the answer to what I'm going to ask you. Oh, let my lord the king speak, the woman said. It's nice that she gives the king permission, isn't it? Then verse 19, the king asked, Isn't the hand of Joab with you in all this? The king's cotton on to what's going on. Joab put you up to this. The wise woman knows that the game is up. She answers, As surely as you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything my lord the king says yes It was your servant Joab who instructed me to do this and who put all these words into the mouth of your servant. And this reveals Joab's motive, verse 20. Your servant Joab did this to change the present situation. And then she adds a flourish to hopefully keep in the the king's good books. My Lord has wisdom like that of of an angel of God. He knows everything that happens in the land. Well, Joab's cunning scheme was to manoeuvre the king to bring Absalom, his banished son, back. But who was right? Should Absalom be brought back or should he die? Should he be banished? Should he be punished for killing Amnon? Or, Or actually was he in the right taking action against Amnon, especially in the absence of any action from the king? Who's doing the right thing in this situation? Does Joab have good intentions or is he trying to bring unity and restoration to David's family or is he just maybe using whatever cunning scheme he can to achieve the outcome that he thinks is best, which would fit with Joab's character? Well, Joab sought to manipulate the king to bring Absalom back. Did it work? Verse 21, the king said to Joab, Very well, I will do it. Go bring back the young man, Absalom. The manipulation worked, or it seemed to. The king gave in and brought back Absalom. But but he seems fairly reluctant to change this situation. This is not kind of full-blown repentance. It's it's unlike his response when he was challenged by Nathan about his adultery with Bathsheba, and he, he just says simply, I have sinned against the Lord. Now here it's, it's, it's hardly heartfelt. And yet he agrees to let Joab fetch Absalom. Joab responds with flattery, verse 22. Is that right? Is that the right verse? Yep. Verse 22. Uh, Joab fell with his face to the ground to pay him honour and he blessed the king. Joab said, Today your servant knows that he has found favour in your eyes, my lord the king, because the king has granted his servant's request. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. Joab would think his scheme has worked. But David has a scheme of his own in mind. His compromised scheme is to allow Absalom to return to Jerusalem but to deny him any access to himself as king. He says, verse 24, But the king said, 
he must go to his own house. Um, uh, he must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. David refused to deal with things. He refused to deal with his son Absalom. Yeah, they're living in the same city now, but relationally they're separated. There's, there's no reconciliation or relationship. And I reckon David's attempt at a solution, his compromised scheme is, is very common. When there's a problem between people, they might just put on a facade that things are okay. But actually they're held at arm's length. It actually doesn't work. It doesn't bring true reconciliation and it can't because there isn't any real admission of guilt. There's no repentance. There's no forgiveness. The cracks are just papered over. It's all too common. And that's David's response. His compromise scheme didn't improve the situation. In fact, it made it worse. But before we get to Absalom's response, we're given some more detail about Absalom, which actually turns out to be pretty significant as the story unfolds. Firstly, we're told he was highly praised for his appearance. Verse 25 says, in all, of, in all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. His would have been the face on the cover of magazines. And we're told he had a very fertile head of hair. Verse 26 Whenever he cut his hair, uh, whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him, he would weigh it and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Now, what's a shekel? Well, 200 of them is, is more than two kilograms of hair each year. Now, it's likely that, um, I want to ask Noah about this, is, you know, how much hair is that, brother? Is that, that's a lot of hair, right? Two kilograms, that's, you know, that's a lot of hair. <laughs> He, was a, he had a very fertile head of hair. Um, why is this included? Well, it's likely this is a sign of his strength. He's like a Samson figure. And so here we have Absalom, the, the son of the king, presented as a popular, good-looking, strong prince. And he has offspring of his own. Verse 27 continues, Three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. His daughter's name was Tamar, and she became a beautiful woman. He named his daughter after his sister. So Absalom has been presented here as, a, as an eligible candidate for the, for the throne, especially if appearances are the thing that matters, which, well, hang on, in light of what we've seen earlier with the rule of, uh, of Saul and the disaster that was, we've learned that actually appearances are not the thing that matters. Nonetheless, as we'll discover next week, Absalom did certainly have his eye on the throne and being excluded from even facing the king for two years, as verse 28 says, this was certainly a problem to Absalom. And so we come to Absalom's determined scheme. Now, Joab had been the one who brought him from Geshur to Jerusalem. And so Absalom figured, well, Joab needs to be the one to finish the job and bring him before the king. So he sends for Joab. Verse 29, Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king, but Joab refused to come to him. So he sent a second time but he refused to come. Whatever reason, Joab doesn't want to be a pawn in Absalom's plan, but Absalom is determined. He, he'll pursue whatever he wants and he doesn't really care about how he goes about getting it. And so verse 30, he said to his, his servants, look, Joab's field is next to mine and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. 
So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. That should get his attention, right? It did. Verse 31, Joab did go to Absalom's house and he said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? What the heck? Why did you set my field on fire? Verse 32, Absalom said to Joab, well, because you didn't come. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> look, I, I sent word to you and said, come here so I can send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me if I was still there. Now then, I want to see the king's face. And if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. It's a pretty bold challenge, isn't it? If I'm guilty of anything, hang on a second. Well, he did kill his brother Amnon. But he might argue, well, he was just filling the vacuum caused by David's failure to bring justice. If I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. It's, it's bold, it's a risky challenge, but he's, he's counting on David's continued passive response. Absalom's ruthless pragmatics worked. Uh, Joab perhaps had a fear of losing more crops. Um, Joab went to the king, verse 33. So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom and he came in, bowed down with his face to the ground before the king and the king kissed Absalom. The king didn't put him to death. The king kissed him. Now, I don't think the writer here is kind of conveying a heartfelt reunion between father and his estranged son. Uh, this is not like the reunion of the estranged brothers Esau and Jacob in Genesis 33, where uh, it says Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him and they wept. This is not like that. There's no, there's no mention of David by name here. He's just the king. This is not a heartfelt reunion of a father and a son. It's, it's a, more of a royal pardon, a pardon from the king to someone who at best has kind of a big shadow hanging over him. So what can we learn from this? Well, I think this chapter illustrates for us the, the foolishness of human schemes. Schemes that really just amount to people doing what they think is the best thing to do in the situation. Uh, but Joab's cunning scheme to manipulate the king to bring back Absalom. But the king's compromise scheme in response to allow Absalom to return but can't see his face. Absalom's determined scheme to effectively force his way before the king and happy to set Joab's field on fire if that's what it takes. It's, it's people just doing what they think is best. And throughout it all, the, the mess of, of guilt, of estrangement, of self-interest remains. Uh, despite various human efforts, there's no justice, there's no repentance, there's no forgiveness or reconciliation. I mean, yeah, there's this display of peace at the end. But as we read on, we discover it's only a facade. The effects of sin are left to compound. It's a pretty desperate, dark picture. And we might get to this point and wonder, well, is there any hope? I mean, is there any hope in 2 Samuel for the people of God or is, as David's failed kingship just kind of ruined everything? Is there hope for us? Us who, who all too often engage in similar foolish schemes with whether cunning or compromise or sheer determination, is there hope for us? Well, the good news of 2 Samuel, the good news of the Bible is there is hope. God is still at work. Despite human folly, God is at work. 
He promised in 2 Samuel 7 that he was going to establish the throne of his king forever and despite David's sin, despite the downhill demise of his house, despite our sin, he has kept that promise. There's a a couple of verses in the New Testament in Colossians 1 where where Paul describes our situation in terms that I, I think are kind of similar but even worse than Absalom's banished state. Paul writes in Colossians 1, sorry, there we are, Um, Colossians 1, 21, he says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, the default state of humanity, the default state for you and me is alienation from God, estrangement, enmity towards God in our minds because of our evil behaviour and that's how we were once. But rather than leave us at a distance, rather than leave us to our self-destruction, God has brought us back to himself and truly reconciled us. Colossians 1 continues, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. No, it is not, not held at a distance beyond the face of the king, but wholly in his sight. Not just with a kind of outward display of beauty or success or strength, but actually truly washed clean without blemish, free from accusation. By Christ's death, God has reconciled us. And he's done it fully. He's done it righteously. He's done it with overflowing abundant grace. This scene uh, with Absalom and the king, you know, at the end with the bowing, the, the kiss, it reminds me as a, as a very poor shadow, reminds me of another scene in the Bible with a father and the return of his estranged son. Luke 15, you might know the, the story of the parable of the lost son. Jesus tells the story of this, this son who left his father, he travelled off to a foreign land and, and he was guilty. He had turned his back on his father. He came to his senses and he returned to his father and when he was when he, he came within sight of the house, what happened? He, he wasn't kept at a distance for two years, unable to see his father's face. He didn't have to force his way in to get a formal audience before his father. Now it says this in, in uh, um, Luke 15, 20. It says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. He lavishly welcomed his wayward son home, restored, forgiven, reconciled. It's a beautiful picture that contrasts 2 Samuel 14. It's a picture of our heavenly father who, despite our foolish schemes, despite our failed attempts to sort things out ourselves, generously, graciously welcomes us home and reconciles us truly to himself through Jesus so that he can present us wholly in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. Praise God for his grace and mercy to us in Jesus. And as people who are reconciled to God, we ought to seek to be truly reconciled to each other in as much as that depends on us. So let's put away our foolish schemes, 
of cunning manipulation, of compromising distancing, forceful determination, be reconciled to God and seek to be reconciled to one another.